0: So my goal in thinking classrooms has always been not to build and find engaging tasks, but to build engaged students that can then be pointed. And then you point those engaged students... You're listening to an
1: interview with an influencer who has made a big impact on how we lead our lessons, and more importantly, how we structure our math classrooms. That's right. Today, we'll be spending some time with the man
2: building thinking classrooms all over the world, Dr. Peter Liljedahl. In this Math Moment interview, we begin with Peter's story that led him down the road to teaching secondary mathematics before shifting his focus to work with pre-service math teachers at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia and engaging in research that is getting students standing and thinking in their math classes. This is episode number 21, The Thinking
1: Classroom, an interview with Dr. Peter Lillodal. Get ready to stand up, join your visible random grouping, and head over to the vertical, non-permanent surface. It's time to do some thinking. Start the intro music.
2: Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter
1: podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who,
2: together with you, the community of educators worldwide, who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Well, I know I'm ready to go. How about you, John? For sure. We want to welcome Dr. Peter Little, Professor of Mathematics
1: Education at Simon Fraser University, who has been researching ways to get students to become resilient problem solvers through ideas such as using vertical non-permanent surfaces, visible random groupings, selecting tasks with evolving complexity, and much more. Well, it's now the time to put that phone in your pocket and listen to Peter give us some great insights. Hey there, Peter. How are you doing on this stormy day? Well, here in Ontario, anyway. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. I just got back from South Africa yesterday. So today's been more of a home day, taking care of business around the house and catching up on email.
1: South Africa, as we were just talking about before the recording started, but uh, how hot was it there? Like they're in their kind of opposite season right now.
0: Yeah, 35 degrees. So, Jeez. They, so the woo! Yeah, a few days before I went, I was in Saskatoon where it was minus 31. So I think that's a record for me for temperature swings across a short span of time.
2: Well, that sounds like a pretty interesting math lesson around integers, and you know, you could have some fun there for sure. Well, why don't uh, we take a couple minutes here? Do you mind introducing yourself? I know many in the math community are aware of who you are, but what's your role in math education, and what sort of makes you tick when it comes to a math education and really trying to push thinking further in the math education space?
0: Well, I'm a professor at Simon Fraser University. I'm in the Faculty of Education, and my unofficial title is Professor of Mathematics Education. I would say that I kind of specialize in teaching and learning, meaning that most of my research and most of my own personal interests and curiosities lie within the ideas of teaching, as informed by trying to motivate better learning in students. And I'm a former high school math teacher, so my roots are in the classroom, and I think that has greatly informed my interest. Oh, I can only imagine.
1: Like you know, that sparks my interest right now. That kind of journey from high school math teacher to professor, or professor back to high school. Can you maybe fill us in on your say math journey? Even like, even thinking back to when you were young, like, what did that path look like for you?
0: Okay, so people may have noticed that my last name is not a typical Canadian last name. I was born in Sweden, and we immigrated to Canada when I was eight years old. And when we did that. The only thing that I could really take with me was mathematics. So I was pretty good at math in Sweden. But when I moved to Canada and entered grade three, that was really the only place I could gain any footing. So I put a lot of energy there. And so math became something, you know, this idea of math as a universal language, I guess, is is true in this regard. So, yeah, math was always something that I was good at. I was interested in. I excelled at. I sometimes accelerated at. Went through high school, did very well in high school, and off to university. It's interesting. I just gave a talk to a group of students in high school the week before I went to South Africa, and I was saying that when I graduated high school, my plan was simple. My plan was simple. I was going to go to UBC, University of British Columbia. I was going to get a degree in mathematics and I was going to become a mathematician, whatever that meant. I had no clue what that meant, but that was, and I, (laughs) yeah, I still don't, you know, and it's, I think this is one of the things that grade 12 students are often faced with when math is what they're good at. Like, what are you going to do with that? Partway through my math degree, and I took a long time to get my undergraduate degree. I was, I was dabbling in sport at the time as well. But at some point, I realized that, okay, so math is, I think I realized I wasn't going to become a mathematician. I was getting a better idea of what that was. But I realized that math was my toolkit, but I had yet a topic to apply it to. So I started shifting into courses in computing science. I picked up a minor in computing science, thinking that that would be the direction I would go in, because that was a nice place to apply mathematics. I kind of realized that I liked programming a little bit too much, like obsessively too much. I was thinking that that was maybe not a healthy lifestyle choice.
2: Were you actually coding or just playing the games? Because, you know, I, I'll take I one a little more than the I other, right?
0: And I was being a little bit of a perfectionist with it. And even when I had the code working exactly the way I wanted, I wanted it to be more compact and more efficient. And, you know, back then memory was expensive and so on. So it was about trying to make efficiencies, which appealed to my, I guess, the aesthetics of mathematics. There had been a number of circumstances by which I had had some encounters with teaching mathematics during this time, one of which was I'd been walking through the concourse at SFU. I had switched to SFU, by the way. So I finished my undergraduate degree at at Simon Fraser University, where I'm now a professor. But I was walking through the concourse, and they had this one of the bulletin boards is like, come be a TA in mathematics and calculus. And I had the little strips of paper that you could tear off. So I pulled that off. I made a call. I got an appointment. It was to be a TA at the university in the math department. I remember I showed up for the meeting and the person interviewing me was a woman by the name of Tessula Bergren, who is now the consular general for Cyprus in Canada. But she's a Cypriot and she was a mathematician and her husband was a mathematician in the math department. I remember I showed up for the meeting. She says, tell me a few things about yourself. And I did. And she says, you know, we don't normally hire undergraduates. So this ad was for graduate students. And I said, oh, wow. Well, OK, well, thank you for your time. And she goes, no, no, no. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. One of the things I told her about was the fact that I was spending significant amount of time at that part of my life in training camps in various places in the world. And there was a lot of high school students in these training camps. And I kind of always became the unofficial camp tutor, helping students with math and physics and things like that. And this seemed to appeal to her. So she hired me and I became a TA. So I was finishing up my undergraduate degree. And one of the people I'd gotten to know during that time, a guy by the name of Grant, said, hey, you should apply for the teacher education program. And I thought, yeah. That's a nice fallback position. (laughs) Right? Like, it's only a one year program. I can do that. It's a nice backstop in case my career as a mathematics computer programmer didn't quite come to fruition or whatever it was I was thinking at the time. So, I entered the program. I got in basically on the fact that I had these experiences as a TA and so on, and um, fell in love with teaching. Like, absolutely fell in love with it. My first practicum that I had to go out for. I showed up and my sponsor teacher, like I literally walked in the door and he looked at me and said, Oh, hey, Peter, I think you can take this lesson. And it was like, I just fell in love with teaching. I thought this is it. I'm going to be a math teacher for the rest of my life. I was teaching in my practicum. I was all high school math courses, eight through 12, a lot of grade 12 calculus. He actually created a calculus course for me to teach with no supervision. Like it was kind of the wild west. Anyway, and then I ended up getting a position in that same school. So I was a high school math teacher. While I had been finishing off my math degrees, there was a number of mathematicians in the faculty who kept asking me to do a master's degree in math. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's, who would ever want to get a master's degree? Like, no, thank you. Like, it's, <laughs> like, if you give me things to solve and problems to solve, fine. But this idea of self-initiated research questions. And like, that is just craziness. There's no way I would do a master's. About three or four years into my teaching, this brochure ended up in my mailbox at school for a master's program at SFU in math education. That was a joint program between the faculty of education and the math department. So like in many places in Canada, this was a concurrent degree. You know, you continue to teach while you are doing your master's. All the courses were in the evening. It was all face-to-face contact. So I signed, I applied and I got in and it was great. It was wonderful professional development, being able to see the same people every Tuesday night. You were always together with the same people and it was great.
2: Ah, interesting.
0: You know, I've coordinated that master's program now for 14 years. So, and then one day I wanted to apply for a scholarship. So I emailed my supervisor and said, would you write me a reference letter? And she says, well, why don't you come in for a meeting? So I came in for a meeting. And she said, so what are you doing these days? And at this point, I had also taken some time off from teaching to be a stay-at-home dad because we had two kids, and my wife and I decided that that was important for one of us to do, and so it was me. And I said, well, this is what I'm doing. She says, okay, well, why don't we do this? I will give you a reference letter for the scholarship application, but why don't you transfer to the PhD program and come and work for me as a TA? And I have a habit of saying yes, even when things are scary and um, yeah (laughs) twist my arm off we went to the races so I never actually finished my master's but now I was in a PhD program and in my first year there came this opportunity to teach a course for pre-service elementary teachers a methods course and I applied and I got it and it was like my first day of teaching again. It was just I just absolutely fell in love with teaching teachers. Stay away from the classroom. I was doing this graduate work with the intention of going back into the math classroom. But here I was working with adults, working on the complexity of teaching and teaching practice. And it was just this whole other ball game. And I fell in love with that. And then a whole bunch of things just fell into place. I did more and more teaching and eventually I finished my PhD and then there was a position available in my Clyde, and I applied and and that's been my life for the last 15 years.
2: You know, that's quite an interesting journey that you've just shared with us here. And I know John's probably there nodding as well. We're actually in separate locations for those who think we're in the same location right now. And, you know, your story sounds similar to John's where he was kind of going that computer science route. I also, I actually started with a major in computer science and then I went to a double major and then eventually went down to a minor in the computer science and just focused on the math. So kind of interesting how those stories align. Now, I'm wondering, so it's really interesting, you've taken some time to stay at home and help raise your two children, which I think is such an awesome thing and I'm sure an experience that you'll always cherish having that opportunity. I'm wondering, like, before you decided to do that and you were in the classroom, and then all of a sudden you come out, I'm assuming a handful of years later, and now you're in the pre-service. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on like, what did teaching look like, sound like to you? And and maybe you might even want to go back to like, what did math class look like, sound like to you? We always ask for our guests to share their memorable math moments. So this might've been when you were younger, it could have been maybe in Sweden, or maybe it was when you came over in Canada, but then also thinking about like when you were as a teacher in the class classroom were some of these ideas that you've been doing research around in these past handful of years, you know, was that what your class looked like, sounded like, or was this sort of an evolution over time? So I know lots of questions sort of loaded in there, but you know, you've got me definitely very curious.
0: You know, my memories of math in Sweden were like, we would literally sit, like I only did grade one in Sweden, but there was days where we worked in these notebooks that were graph paper and we would open a page. And the first page, every cell on the graph paper was filled with the number one. And we just spent like an hour writing the number one over and over and over again. And then the next day we would turn the page and we would do number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, How are you? You're yeah. yeah. awesome yeah. like dashed yeah. lines <laughs>
1: into trace. Yeah.
2: Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now.
0: And, you know, and then there was a whole bunch of addition things. I do remember as a child figuring out what multiplication was and how it worked on my own. And that has a lot to do with the language around multiplication in Swedish. That sort of makes itself obvious what it's meant to do. When I came to Canada, it was... Do you, do you mind elaborating on that? I'm actually kind of curious. Is it like a group of sort of language or... Oh, well, the language kind of says, if you go three times four, it basically says three repeated four times. Like that's the language of multiplication.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you speak, can you speak Swedish? <laughs> yeah, <it's>
0: tri- <laughs>
1: yeah, I would love to hear it.
0: I can say in Swedish. Yeah, yeah, I'm fluent. So it's triagongafira. So the language really sort of pushed me in that direction. But it was kind of a significant thing because I'd figured it out on my own. And and I think this is, you know, the rest of math elementary was very much what we would consider an ultra-traditional classroom, right? There was a lot of direct instruction worksheets, a lot of time drills, pass a paper to the person sitting behind you, the person at the back brings their paper to the front, a lot of public shaming, You know, and that cuts both ways because people not performing well are being shamed, but people who are excelling are also being shamed in a world where, you know, it's just not cool to be good at math,
2: right? Right. So like maybe the other students, you know, kind of pushing back on students doing well
0: and just that negativity. Right. And if you happen to make a single, I remember a couple of events where we were playing, this was great Five, we were playing this game where the teacher made everyone line up at the front of the room and then she would come down the line and ask a multiplication question. And if you got it right, you could go and sit down. And then if you got it wrong, you had to stay standing. Like we call it around the world.
2: Yeah, around the world. It's like, it's, it's almost world, like opposite
0: yeah. around the world. We, hear,
2: we still hear about right, it sometimes, oh, you know. Yeah.
0: Like it, I have a lot of judgment about that. But nonetheless, I remember this one time the teacher asked me a question. I answered it. I answered it correctly. She said wrong and kept moving. And like just the teasing that came with that when the person who always gets it right all of a sudden got it wrong. And it was almost worse than the person who gets it wrong all the time, right?
2: I always remember as well, you know, in those types of scenarios, not necessarily the exact, you know, around the world, but just having to participate, even though I was one of those kids that sort of was lucky enough to kind of be able to sort of see some patterns and, you know, I could figure out the answer. I didn't really understand in in all cases, but I remember feeling very anxious, just because it was like a performance. You know, it was like, am I well enough rehearsed to be able to open my mouth? And math class wasn't really a social endeavor. You know, it wasn't a collaborative endeavor back then either. So very similar memory for me as well.
0: You know, and I think this is true of a lot of kids who excel at mathematics. I saw the patterns in between I saw the patterns despite the teaching that I was being exposed to. And I started to find the efficiencies and so on and so forth. And then off to high school, which was grade eight for us. And I ended up having a situation where I had the same high school math teacher for grade eight, nine and ten. And she didn't really know what to do with me. So she just gave me the next year's textbook. Right. So I kind of sat at the desk and tried to figure out the patterns on my own. You know, the last thing I was going to do was actually read the textbook, that was, it was like just trying to spot the patterns and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, she was a traditional lecturer, stood at the overhead projector and lectured. And for the most part, I didn't participate in that because I was trying to noodle my way through a grade 10 textbook and so on.
1: Like these stories are, you know, I think there's a lot of these same stories from many people going through math. Are these stories that are kind of fueled you to do the research and the work that you're doing now or is that a different kind of origin story no
0: no no but i think that's a good question what's fueled me to do the work right now is the realization that i'm one of the few who can do that right like i was one of the 20 percent of kids who are going to survive math and excel in math despite what happens to them And not it's like
2: you either are a math person or not. And it's like in that system, that is the reality. But maybe it doesn't have to actually be that way.
0: Right. And I don't believe it has to be that way. But it was that realization that and I think that realization came when I was teaching, when I started teaching high school that it was You know, like me saying it more clearly isn't going to get this done.
2: Now, how long did it take you to figure that out? Because I feel like especially secondary teachers and I know elementary, there's a variety of different background stories. You know, some elementary teachers got in because they love teaching math. Others, it's like, no, I got in because I just love working with kids and maybe math wasn't my thing. But for secondary teachers, did you find that? challenging to work with a group of students and students who are very, you know, they come into our classroom in secondary with a very sort of their minds are made up on whether they like math, like whether I'm quote unquote, a math person or not. And when folks like yourself, and it sounds very similar to my experience, and it sounds like John as well, you know, we walk in and we sort of it's like, we don't know what it's like to be on the other side, where maybe it isn't so you know, some of those patterns aren't obvious, or maybe some people haven't been able to, let's memorize, you know, the steps and procedures or whatever. Like, what was that like for you walking into that secondary math classroom in order to be able to, I guess, empathize for the different variety of students at their different levels in the classroom?
0: So I was kind of privileged to work at a school. We had this ethos at the school as a math staff that everyone is going to go all the way in math. Like back then, we only had two streams. We had the pre calculus stream and then what we call the essential stream, right? Which was sort of like carving people off into this cul de sac. And we had this sort of ethos that no, everyone's going to do pre calc 12. Like we're all going to get there. And we had 200 kids in a typical grade 12 year. We would have seven blocks of pre calc 12 and two blocks of calculus. So there was maybe 10 kids in grade 12 who weren't taken pre-calculus 12. And there was this real sort of community within the school that, yeah, everyone can do it. And it was just this sort of assumption that we're all going to do this. There wasn't anything like streaming where we were culling the weak people from the herd. We were getting the full rainbow. And it's not that the school was full of gifted students. It was a typical demographic. But now our teaching was really challenged by the fact that okay, we got to work with these kids. And most of our math department was actually PE teachers who would teach one or two blocks in math. And then there was a couple of- That's an extra
2: challenge for sure.
0: Well, yes and no. We had some people who were very good math teachers and some people who actually instilled a lot of self-confidence in kids, which I think made our job easier when they would get up to grade 12 and so on. And like as a beginning teacher, I was- Stand and deliver. You know, I had great board work and I had some good humor, and my lecturing style was entertaining, I would say. There was certainly group activity that would happen from time to time, but I always taught from a conceptual perspective. I never bought into the mnemonics or the memorize this. It was always conceptual. So, for example, one of the things I sent you an email was this unit circle superimposed on graph paper. So this was something I started using in grade when I was teaching trig in grade 12 was we stopped using calculators for trig and we started using this piece of paper and this piece of paper scaled the way it is and I would have stacks of this on my desk and the kids would do all their calculations using this so if i asked them to figure out what the sine of 80 degrees was knowing what that sine is positive in certain quadrants and so on they would, and that sine is the y-coordinate, they would be able to pull the y-coordinate off of this for, at 80 degrees. And conversely, if I asked them to solve cosine theta equals 0.6, they could use this graph with the superimposed circle on it to actually estimate what the angles were to within pretty accurate, like to within half a degree. And I never had kids asking me, if was this an inverse sign or should it be sign? Right,
2: right. Yeah, it was like they could see it. It was obvious, right, when they see it conceptually, right?
0: Yeah, right. And tangent was the slope, and it was completely conceptual, and they would work on these papers, and when it was so marked up that they couldn't, all they needed was a ruler and a pencil. And when it was all marked up to the point where they couldn't work it anymore, they'd throw it in the recycling and grab another sheet. And... It, very conceptual this way and and not all my peers were doing this; they were teaching cast and and standard position angle, so I always had a very conceptual approach and I think getting back to your earlier question, the breakthrough moment for me was I was teaching this non a p calculus course. I really liked that course. it was an important course for me to teach because I didn't think that the a p kids were the ones who actually needed a jump on calculus. It was the next level of kids who needed to have sort of a an inoculation into calculus, we could say. And I remember we were about halfway through the year, and it was an early morning course, like it was an off-calendar course, so it was before school started. And they needed to differentiate an exponential function. And we had done implicit differentiation in trig, and we had done inverse operations. So this was technically doable. And I remember I came in, and I put up the question on the board, and I said, figure out how to do this. Talk amongst yourselves. And they just sat there and stared at me and they wouldn't move like, and it was like dead air, right? Like in dead air in a classroom just drags on forever. They're just waiting for you to show them how to do it. And I'm realizing in this moment, holy cow, I've just been spoon feeding these kids. They don't know. I'm sure they can do it. They just don't know that they can do it. So I stared at them in like 30 seconds of dead air. And I finally just said, I have to go do some photocopying. And I left the room. And I was teaching in a portable. So I actually stood out in the parking lot and watched through the window. And nobody moved and nobody talked. And I stood out there for 15 minutes and I walked back in. And I said, does anyone have anything to say? And they all just stared at me. And I just said, i got to go check the photocopying. And I left again. (laughs) And and I stood out in the parking lot for another 10 minutes. And I came back in and I said, anything? And they just stared at me. And I said, class dismissed. And their jaws just dropped. And off they went. And then the next morning when they came in, or it was two days later, they came in for class. All the boards were clear. The same question was written up on the front of the board and I said figure out how to do this talk to each other I got to go do some photocopy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they know That's the cats awesome. out of the bag there that you don't really have to do photocopying. They picked up on that pretty good. Yeah.
2: This is not going to solve itself and I'm not going to be the one to do it either.
0: Yeah. And I stood in the parking lot for 35 minutes before anyone turned to each other and started talking. Now, this was long before I was doing any vertical surfaces or anything. So that sort of burst the bubble for me. And I realized that, am I really doing these kids a a service, especially if they're going to go off to university? And so the next test they wrote was a take-home test. And again, their jaw dropped. I said, your unit test is going to be a take-home test. You have to come here on Friday and sign saying that you will not cheat. And then you take it and it's due Monday morning. And it was 23 questions where the 23rd question was, how long did you spend on this test? And the average was 20 hours. They came in on Monday morning and they were like, they were worked up. And then one of them said, I see what you mean. Because what I had done was put questions on here that They knew how to do, I just hadn't shown them how to do it.
2: Right. So, you know, planning with intentionality, right? And in my mind, something that I'm taking away from this is that even though you were teaching conceptually, which I was not always doing a great job of, uh, especially early in my career, because I literally did not understand how some of the math actually worked and developed. So in certain areas, I was unable to do that. So I was sort of like teaching very procedurally in a lot of ways, but even in your situation where... You were approaching things conceptually, which is amazing, which is awesome and and really important, yet it was still, again, you doing the work, quote-unquote, the work and sort of showing them the step-by-step and then leaving them in this position where they go... I actually don't know how to solve any unfamiliar problems. And, you know, I think this is a good segue. John has kind of a a question for you, some questions that he wanted to ask. So I think this is a great time for us to segue there, John, what are you thinking? Yeah, like Peter, I've seen you live a number of times. And,
1: you know, every time I listen to you, you always have these, you know, great messages and great suggestions for class and for changing the teaching in my room. And, you know, I've put a lot of your suggestions into place. Like one of the last times I saw you you had 14 ideas or 14 recommendations directly from your research, which, you know, hearing the research too, you know, it almost backs us up to say like, this is going to work. Like we've got people working on this to give us some evidence to say, to make sure that we are working in the right direction. What I love about the 14 recommendations that you have, like some are very lesson specific, like questioning and notes and types of problems. But the other thing that I really love is that you also include recommendations for like classroom setup and structure and grouping, which, you know, not a lot of people I think are doing. But I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit about one of the 14s, like you could even start with like, if there's like a number one, or even like maybe the one you think is the most important.
0: Okay, so before I do that, I'll just say this. One of the things that motivated me to do that research was the realization that the institutionally normative structures of school we're probably holding our kids back. And the other thing I realized was, all these years we've been doing professional development where we're trying to change the teacher so the teacher can change the experience for the kids. The problem I realized was that the kids are the biggest stakeholders in this. And early efforts I was doing in professional development to try to change these norms was always through the teacher. And all of the results were sort of indicating, yeah, well, if the teacher's already doing problem solving, then this works. And if they're not, then it doesn't work. And the kids had a lot more to say about what was going to work in the classroom than what the teacher was doing. So part of this research was informed by trying to change the norms. And the other part, through the realization that we really got to create a new norm for the kids early on. And this is where the vertical surfaces and the random groups And the rich tasks came in. That first wheel has those three things. And they come very powerfully together. And what they do is it creates a radically different normal for the kids so that the kids can be different. And that kind of creates momentum. So, yeah, the teacher has to do things different. What it does is it changes the kids. And it changes the kids and their experience in the room so quickly and so radically that now the teacher can start to do the work of changing their practice does that make sense?
2: No, absolutely it does. And you know, it's interesting to me because even just highlighting, you know, the vertical non-permanent surfaces, visible random grouping, and then the idea of problem solving. I know some of these pieces are in these 14 recommendations that you have. I'm wondering, can you help for someone who's listening going like, what is a vertical non-permanent surface? I mean, I really, if we think about what each word means, I think people would be able to figure it out, but it just sounds kind of scary. Like, what does that mean to you? And maybe, I don't know, is there, specific reason why you use that language over maybe something else hey there math moment makers are you a dedicated listener like i'm talking have you been listening for a couple months maybe even a couple years
0: First of all, I should say that the first time I ever experienced that myself was as a teacher when my department had started dabbling with this. And then I did it, and then I left it, and then I didn't come back to it until I was doing this research. It's called a vertical non-permanent surface. That's not what it was called to begin with. What it was called to begin with was a whiteboard. And not just any whiteboard, the research showed clearly that when we have the kids working in groups at whiteboards that are mounted on the wall, not little individual whiteboards or even bigger whiteboards at the table, we saw way more engagement across a whole bunch of different metrics from eagerness to start to participation to perseverance. Like it was the metrics were through the roof whenever we had the kids working in groups at vertical whiteboards. But teachers are incredibly innovative. When they started to find that this was really effective, but they were limited in resources, they started to improvise. And we learned that it worked just as well if we worked on windows, or if we duct taped up a shower curtain, or stapled a vinyl picnic table cover onto our bulletin board, or if we stood our tables up on end or if we wrote on the side of a file cabinet. Now, is there a
2: difference between a blackboard? Like, was there anything there? I've always made the assumption in my mind, maybe it's just an assumption or maybe I've heard something a couple of years ago when I've seen you speak a few times. Is there anything about a blackboard with chalk? Is there pro con to that? Or would that just kind of fit into this other grouping that you've highlighted here?
0: It fits in perfect. The only difference is that when we have the kids working on whiteboard or whatever surface, we only give them one marker. And likewise, you only get one piece of chalk. Well, they can break the chalk. So we have to make a whole bunch of noise around that so that they stay with one writing implemented. It, it forces a collaboration the communication better.
2: Yeah. So you'd have to have that those norms very, now I don't want to say structured, it sounds wrong, but just making sure that the community is strong enough where students don't feel the need to sort of like try to get around that idea, right?
0: Right. So like every time you break the chalk, the Leafs lose the game <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> right? like
2: <laughs> A couple of years ago, we didn't have to do anything, and the we were losing, but now it's you know, um, not so yeah, bad. Yeah, you not
0: being broken yeah. back then. <laughs> so this notion of vertical non-permanent surfaces as a word or as a phrase replaced the notion of whiteboards because in order to honor the ingenuity of the teachers I was working with.
1: I know you said that just because it's vertical and non-permanent, like what are your ideas on like why that data is
0: the way it is? I love those why questions. One of the things that was amazing about this research was, in every instance, I had the results before I had the explanation. And this was one of them. Vertical non-permanent surfaces came out number one in every metric. I had no idea why. So now came the fun part, right? Like trying to unpack this and make sense of it. So it turns out there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's better. So one, ergonomically, it turns out that having your head in an up position is better for you than having it tilted down. That's a very subtle thing. It turns out that blood flow promotes that's promoted by having to stand is good for you. Also very subtle. It turns out that 50% of communication is nonverbal, right? So it's done through gestures. And it turns out it's easier to gesture when we're standing than when we're sitting. It also very subtle. Some other subtle things. When we're standing, every student in the group has the same orientation to the work. And the ability to look at other people's work. That's not so subtle. That's a really powerful stimulus for the students who are working in this setting.
2: That's interesting. When I'm on the phone, even I'm like a pacer. If I'm brainstorming, I tend to want to stand. So, you know, some of the pieces that you've just articulated there, just this idea of, you know, ergonomically also like the, the blood flow kind of, I always felt it was like the adrenaline, right? But I mean, that's, you know, your blood kind of doing its thing, right? Sending things where it needs to go. So that makes a ton of sense to me for sure.
0: But all of those things were trumped by one other piece of research that emerged later on in the process. And it took a long time to get at this because the kids had a difficult time articulating. But it turns out it's not that standing is so good. It's that sitting is so bad. And not like sitting is the new smoking bad. But like it turns out when the kids are sitting, they feel anonymous. And when they feel anonymous, they are much more likely to disengage. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious act. So, you know, oh, the teacher can't see me, so I'm gonna work on my social studies homework. Or that sort of subconscious pulling out the phone and looking at it, or just subconsciously disengaging. And like I said, it took a while to get at this, but when they are sitting, they feel anonymous. And the more, the further they are from the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And the more things that are between the teacher and that student, like desks and other students, the more anonymous they feel. And all of a sudden we have them standing spread out around the room, they don't feel anonymous anymore.
1: It's almost like they have to have their A game out.
0: Yeah, but what's interesting is they don't feel like they're being put on display or that it's it's not a conscious feeling. It's just that subconscious feeling of being able to disengage because you're anonymous isn't there anymore.
2: Well, just even that culture of the room, there's like that culture of collaboration when people are not sitting in desks. Like even if you take those desks and put them in pairs, right? I used to do that when I tried to make my classroom more collaborative, but things were still very quiet. And here it's like you have movement and you have you know almost that freedom a little bit of that autonomy to kind of walk around if you need to right if you want to go to another group to try to have a discussion over there like to me i can see that idea and student voice and all of those pieces just fitting in so nicely here so i like how you've articulated that
0: there's a researcher in israel who refers to these environments as choice rich environments I want to go
1: back just for a moment. You were talking about the students being at the board and being able to, say, look around the other boards. When I bring, you know, vertical non-permanent service ideas up to fellow teachers, you know, some of them are saying, well, well, do you want them to like look at everyone else's work? Like, why aren't they copying that work? And even kids bring it up. Like they sometimes even will say like, am I supposed to look around at other people's work? What would you say to those teachers? Like, how do you convince them to say like, that's actually beneficial for the kids?
0: You know, this was a concern of ours too. But what's so interesting about it is, yeah, they look around, but they don't steal finished work. What they steal are ideas so that they can get through the work. And it's fascinating to watch the way they'll take an idea and then try to make it their own and use it to finish off. It's really, really rare. I can maybe think of it twice where I've actually seen a group stand and just copy, you know, symbol for symbol from what another group has done. It's just not what they do. It might be what they do early on when they think that the goal is to get done, right? So when kids believe that the goal of the lesson is to get done a set of questions, then that's how they behave. But when But in thinking classrooms, they very quickly pick up on that the goal is to understand what you're doing and to think your way through this and to use the resources in the room to get yourself to understanding this.
2: And it sounds to me as well that like, I mean, that's where the role of the teacher also comes in in terms of building that culture and making sure that your actions and your words align, right? Where if I'm saying, you know, I'm really interested in the process, but at the end, I'm not valuing that through my actions, whether it be through Through assessment or whatever it might be, those mixed messages kind of, you know, they don't jive together. So, building that culture and really, you know, walking the walk when we say, who cares about the idea? And then I think it also goes right back to John's initial question where it's like, who cares if they copy it all? If they do, our problem's much bigger than that. If I'm worried about them copying it, then. I'm sort of indicating that maybe I'm maybe leaning too hard on that answer piece versus that thinking process and convincing piece, right? Getting students to be able to convince one another.
1: It's almost like a fine line to say like I am doing vertical non-permanent surfaces at the wall and then when you have kids who work at the board and when you're saying like what Kyle said like what are the actions a teacher is is making clear to the students because it's saying like that once that problem's done you can go back and sit down, all they're going to do is want to be done like you just said and And now the goals, just from that one phrase, now the goal is to get done. And so that's where it's going to be like, I'm just going to write that answer down. And when he comes over, he's just going to to check off that I did it instead of having that conversation with the group to talk about the thinking. And there's that fine line to say, I'm doing vertical non-permanent services, but what are the actions that you are actually making clear to your students?
0: Right. So the thinking classroom framework is 14 ways to build a thinking classroom. There's about 100 ways to screw it up. So one really simple example of how thinking classrooms are so quickly messed up is if I put up 10 questions on the board and I say, go to your vertical surfaces and do these 10 questions, that sends a very strong message that the goal here is to get done those 10. And now whatever collaboration you may have fostered within the room and whatever you have built around meaning making, it goes out the window because now the goal is to get done and the strong member of the group is going to grab the mark and off they go. So it's these subtle, what I call micro moves inside of each of these tools that are important as well around like having one marker instead of having three, having groups of three instead of groups of four, and so on and so forth. These are subtle things that we learn from the research that make it better.
2: Right, right. right. You know, and something that I hear out of that as well is, you know, when I going back and saying, you know, here's 10 questions, go do them. It, it, John and I, and as, as you know, we talk a lot about curiosity and, you know, really there are so many different ways to build curiosity into your classroom. And something I always really respect about your work, is the the tasks that you select. And, you know, I, I don't want to go uh, as far as to say that, you know, every, ta- like it's really tough to define a rich task because it's really what you do with it. But the tasks that you uh, provide up on your website and in your workshops that I've had the pleasure of attending, what I notice is that. Sometimes it's not even, you know, it's not how the, the task is presented. Sometimes people get tricked and think, you know, that what makes uh students curious is about how the how the question is presented, let's say using a video or something along those lines. But what I notice about your tasks is that many times, you know, you you tell them like a story, like you 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 say it, and then it doesn't necessarily seem curious at first but as soon as you try one like you just think about it just for a moment all of a sudden it's like the challenge aspect of it this you know like you start to go huh Like, there's something going on here. And again, it's like now you're captivated and you're drawn in. Like, do you, how do you, how do you plan what sort of tasks you might do? You know, if a teacher's sitting at home listening to this, going like, wow, I've never heard of vertical non permanent, or maybe I have and I haven't really understood how, and they want to go try this. Like, what are some things that you're thinking about in order to select a task that, you know, might at least give me a a good, uh, a good jump start on trying this? In my own classroom?
0: So, well, there's two types of tasks that live in the thinking classroom. The one is what I call a rich task. Those are vital at the beginning part. And those are the ones we do in the workshops because coming in and doing a really exciting long division problem with a group of teachers isn't really going to convey the message. So, for rich tasks, I look for a number of things, but we can use common lingo, low floor, high ceiling, and things like this. What I really want is what i call evolving complexity so as the further you get into the problem the more complexities reveal themselves and those evolving complexities are only accessed by the students who are getting through there as opposed to hitting them with complexity right out of the gate and these rich tasks and i have a collection of them and it turns out we need them early on when we're building the culture and we also refer to them as non-curricular tasks because the goal is not to get through curriculum. And there are some resources out there that allow you to teach an entire curriculum through rich tasks. And I really appreciate those, but that gets harder and harder to do the higher the grade goes. And what those tasks do, and when we're introducing Thinking Classroom to students, is we start to get them into the habit of anticipating the next complexity. And stealing the next question from another group around them and enjoying being in that space where we're learning more and more and more and the task is getting harder and harder and harder and we're up for the challenge and, and this is fun. And I'm really enjoying doing the thinking and the learning and the meaning making. Like that's the culture we're trying to build. And at the same time that it's a safe space, it's collaborative. There's lots of visuals around the room and other groups working. There isn't anyone focused on me. There's, it's a safe space to make mistakes because I can erase it because it's a non-permanent surface. So it becomes a safe environment to start to forge ahead into this space. And then we slide into what I call the more curricular-based tasks, which really are just tasks that we normally do with our classroom. So coming in and asking our students to factor a trinomial without me having taught them how to do it. And then when they figure that one out, they get the next one, which is harder. And then the next one, which is harder yet. And the next one, which is harder yet. And so on and so forth. And everything is the same about this experience as with a rich task, except what I'm doing now is I'm sort of hitting the curriculum head on, but it still has all those pieces. It has an evolving complexity as the coefficients change and the signs on the coefficients change. It has the opportunity to make meaning at every stage it has a low floor if you set it up right and it's we can walk into this and we can all be successful at this level but it is going to get harder and harder so my goal in thinking classrooms has always been not to build and find engaging tasks but to build engaged students that can Mm -hmm. then
2: that's a show notes quote right there
0: yeah (laughs) and that can then and then you point those engaged students at any content. And they will think and engage and make meaning and engage in the evolving complexity. That's what the game is here. That's what the goal is.
1: I think you've addressed a lot of questions that uh, Kyle and I wanted to chat with you about here today, because, you know, when we talk about teaching this way through task and engaging our students the way you've articulated it, and especially bringing out some of the tasks that you share on your website, teachers will say, yeah, that's all great, but when am I supposed to do that? Or you know, I have to cover curriculum. I have to teach the curriculum expectations. I'm just trying to want to summarize what you said. Like For those teachers who have those kind of questions, you're saying, like work with the non curriculum tasks first, which can help build that culture, build that community in your classroom and then slowly move into the curriculum or the curricular tasks that help engage them in that learning process. And then it's not such a shock when all of a sudden they're learning new stuff, but they've already been experienced to this kind of new way of, you know, engaging their own learning. Would that be your recommendation to teachers who are like, I don't have that kind of time to teach this way? You know, like I hear that a lot, you know, especially in high school, for sure.
0: I hear it a lot too. And you've got to go slow to go fast, right? So taking that time early on to build the competencies, to build up the culture, to build the norms of the thinking classroom, and then pointing them out at the thinking classroom pays off in spades. Like the longest it takes to do a unit on factoring quadratics is two days. It usually takes one day. Completing the square is usually a one-day unit. Logarithms, we've gone through and as well, that one takes two days, usually, sometimes three like we're tearing through content when once we get the students thinking, when students are not thinking, everything we teach is difficult, right?
2: Yeah, because they don't understand anything, right? Like because no learning is actually happening, right? And you're just spinning tires,
0: we got to cut the content into bite sized pieces and pre chew mm-hmm. it for them,
2: right? right? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, because I'm sitting here, and there's lots of head nodding. I, this is the one time that I wish that there was video on podcast, <laughs> because I'm like sitting here, you know, and you can't see my acknowledgement and my agreements going on. But you know, a few things, even going back to this non curricular first idea to build that culture. It reminds me a lot of what John and I tend to suggest for teachers who haven't used like a notice and wonder in their classroom. Like we're big on with curiosity. We like to push this idea of noticing and wondering and really getting kids to, again, think, but in a very non-threatening way. And early on, you know, like day one of the course, we sort of say the same thing, which is let's just build the culture. Like we've got to do, and this is an investment, but then the other piece that I'm hearing from you as well is you know this idea of these non-curricular tasks might set off a red flag for a teacher but at the end of the day in most curriculums like it whether it's a common core or here in ontario where john and i are from like we have the process expectations which when you look at those those are the curriculum and same with these mathematical practices for common core and, and i'm sure in many other curriculums around like it's not all content based and yet a lot of us sometimes just get hung up on that and like you're Saying by building that culture, we get that huge payoff later, where now we get to focus on teaching like where it matters instead of teaching all the surface stuff, where the kids are kind of like peeling that stuff away really fast as they gain more confidence and sort of like engage in this sort of culture in the classroom.
0: I had a master's student named Maria Kirchhoff. She did her master's thesis on where the context was a thinking classroom in a grade 10 curriculum in British Columbia. And in BC, grade 10 is still a common curriculum. So we have almost all the kids together in a grade 10 class. So 18 days. So she, for four weeks straight, all she did was rich tasks. So none of this, let's point them at core content, just rich tasks. She picked eight, and it was, there was a couple of holidays in there. So it ended up being 18 school days. So she did 18 rich tasks in 18 days, and she tracked a student to see how much math they bumped into during those 18 days. And by math, I mean both curricular math and what we call the competencies, which is like your processes. And in 18 days, she bumped into every grade 10 learning outcome except for two, a whole bunch from grade 11 and grade 12, a whole bunch from grade 9, 8, 7 down to six, and hit pretty much all of the competencies. So it was like, if we could just do rich tasks, and I really firmly believe in that, I would love to be able to do just rich tasks, but my goal is to make every task rich. Like what determines whether a task is rich has a lot more to do with the disposition of the student than it does and the environment in which it's done than it does the actual task. So that's what I've been working on.
2: That's awesome, and you know I love how you use the term "bumped into" because I find ourselves saying very similar things when we're promoting this idea of, you know, trying to ununitize or unsilo or de-silo all of the curriculum and sort of mix it up a little bit in order to promote more thinking and more problem solving, those resilient problem solvers. So it's great to hear that echoed in that description there,
1: Peter. We know you are a busy man, and we don't want to take up too much of your time, but we have maybe just two more questions here. One that we're probably going to be trying to ask all of our guests near the end of the episodes, which is just to give you a little background. In my class, I start each semester and end each semester with asking my students to complete a phrase, which is math is like, and then I just leave the dot, dot, dot. And their job is to kind of complete that sentence. Uh, Like, what is it like? And then explain why they say that. And What is helpful for me, it gets everything out into the open and the first day of class, like where they're coming from, some of the ideas that they bring with them, what are their thoughts on math? We have a good discussion about that to start setting our mindset. And then we end the semester, like we just ended our semester, our time of this recording. And so I always bring it back to see if, if anybody has changed after being in my class for a semester. So we want to pose that to you. Like, what is math like to you? So if I said math is like, and then dot, 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 what would you say?
0: Okay, before I answer that question, I have to tell you something that I do in my teaching. When I teach the undergraduates, the pre-service teachers, I always ask them four questions. I ask it to them on the first day, I ask it to them on the last day, and I ask it to them on a day in the middle. And the four questions are, what is mathematics? What does it mean to teach mathematics? What does it mean to learn mathematics? And did Peter teach today? And those are the four questions I get asked. And I've actually written research papers on the results of that research and how their views and their beliefs change over time. So if you want to ask me what mathematics is, I'm going to say mathematics is a verb. And I can come at that from lots of different perspectives, but mathematics is also a noun. And I think many of the problems that we're faced with in math education today lives in the tension between math as a noun and math as a verb. Is math the stuff that we have to learn? Or is it, the doing and curricula are, are across Canada are more and more moving into the math as a verb. And yet our external assessments is a lot about math as now. So that's the tension we live in. So for me, the content of a curriculum is just the context, the processes or the competencies are the content.
2: That to me is very powerful. I love those four questions as well. Just thinking about that. And I'm picturing, especially question number four You know, if someone comes into your class, pre-service teacher, and you don't say nearly as much as what I'm used to a teacher saying, I might have very different perspective on whether you taught anything that day or not. And then by the end, I'm certain that that would change quite dramatically. Peter, one more here. And I just want to let you know, we have a huge Google Doc here of questions and how silly of us to think that we were going to be able to dive into all 14 <laughs> I think we got through of those recommendations. agents yeah. <laughs> we were just- Yeah, we got through too. So I'm hoping maybe sometime in the future, we'll be able to invite you back on and dive into some of these others uh, more deeply. But before we let you go, what are you working on right now? Like, What's keeping you curious in the teacher education space right now? Is there anything, maybe it's content focused, maybe it's a verb, or maybe it's a noun?
0: What's on your mind currently? Well, right now I'm writing up the book, Building Thinking Classrooms. So that's keeping me busy and curious. I'm doing some research on tensions that teachers experience. One of my doctoral students is doing her thesis on that. I'm also spending some time with some international collaborators looking at some creativity in mathematics, which was the basis of my PhD thesis. Sort of breaking down some of the barriers around creativity. So that's sort of the space that I'm living in right now. But what's keeping me curious in the thinking classroom framework is I am gearing up to spend a lot more time thinking about how this framework applies in other subject areas. And I'm still trying to understand why some things are the way they are in the thinking classroom framework. I have a pretty good handle on the results of each of the pieces and why that is what it is. But this sequence of four toolkits of the 14 practices are embedded in is still fascinating me because that was an empirically emergent result and trying to understand why some things are where they are in this sequence. And there's some new data that's showing that maybe some of these are a little bit more flexible.
2: I'm very excited to keep our ears to the ground. And when your book comes out, I'm sure it's going to be a very, very hot item out in the uh, PD market for sure. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to hear. I know uh, where you are right now, things are a little bit nicer, not necessarily warm, but warmer than where John and I are right now. So thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to share this episode with the rest of the math community, and hopefully we'll see you at a conference sometime soon.
0: Thank you for your time.
2: Wow. Thanks so much, Peter, for joining us on the Making Math Moments That Matter
1: podcast. You dropped a bunch of math PD knowledge bombs on us during that
2: interview. The biggest takeaway for me was how Peter suggested that teachers may want to consider starting with problems that are non-curricular in nature in order to build that culture of thinking in the classroom prior to building in the curricular focus tasks. It just goes to show how important building that culture in our classroom is, and it is an investment investment that's going to reap huge rewards in the long run. Something for us all to keep front of mind. How about you, John? What resonated with you?
1: Yeah, there was a ton of things, but my biggest takeaway was how he said that there are fourteen recommendations for the work that he's doing with the Thinking Classroom and a hundred ways to wreck it. You know, it's so important that we critically think about the things we say and do in our classrooms with students. I think uh, gone are the days where I can just pull up an example or a problem and solve it. You know, winging it without thinking about what questions I want to ask the students and what language and actions I need to. them. It's uh, I think so important that we critically think about these things going forward. I'm looking forward to having him back on the show to talk more about that and other parts of that thinking
2: classroom. Awesome stuff. So how about you at home? What's your big takeaway from this episode? Remember, you've got to share it with a friend. Maybe it's a colleague or send us a message on social media at make Math moments on Twitter, Instagram, or
1: Facebook. In order to ensure you don't miss out on the new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform.
2: Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach an even wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweeting us at MakeMathMoments on twitter show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 21 again makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 21 well until next time i'm kyle pierce and i'm john Orr. high fives for us and high fives for you